It's Wednesday, July 9th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Wow, it's one day after Team Germany hacked through the Amazon like Klaus Kinski with a machete, half a bottle of schnapps in them, and a large boat that needed moving. So I won't bore, sorry, I won't delight you with my tactical analysis, though I do think the Brazilian goalkeeper should have decided to reach for a lot of the balls that might have been coming his way, actually reach for them. Not reaching might have been a tactical error, but fandom. I want to talk about fandom. I think I was meant, we were all meant to root for the Brazilians, right? Even though they were the favorites and they're a huge soccer country, I think they were posited as essentially the underdogs because they're the purveyors of the beautiful game and perhaps winning can act as a bomb for all the wounds visited upon them by FIFA excess. And I do feel kind of bad for the Brazilian fans, though they haven't been acting that admirably thus far this tournament, right? When their best player got hurt, they let loose with a pretty large amount of vile and racist threats against the Colombian player who hurt him. And then you also got the fact that the Germans, let's be honest, you're not supposed to root for the Germans, right? Germans themselves have trouble rooting for Germany, not the team, but the flag, the country. Flags are fraught in Frankfurt, and I think we know why. But these Germans, they play coherent soccer, and the Brazilians got sliced like the tender picanha cuts of meat in a skewer at the Churrascaria. And before they could flip over their card from green to red, the Germans scored again and again and again, and I thought it was delightful. I know that we're supposed to look at this with words like shame and humiliation when thinking about the Brazilians, but I just thought it was fantastic how the Germans could take advantage of a discombobulated Brazilian defense. If you want to talk about the FIFA protests concentrating on infrastructure, the infrastructure of the Brazilian defense needed some reworking. To quote one wag, the last German to score this much was Hans Zimmer. As for Germany's opponent, I'm glad it's Argentina. The continental clash is a fun aspect to the World Cup. But what was it like to be in the stadium when the Brazilian dream died a horrible death? We will one question, one question, only that at the top of the show. And in the spiel, I'll be talking about foreign policy, Obama and Republicans, and also... We'll feature a panel discussion on teacher tenure, three principals gathered together, taking different sides of an issue that has come to define education reform. But first, Ken Early was at the game. So Ken Early has been covering these games for Slate. He writes for the Irish Times, and he also has a podcast called Second Captains. Hello, Ken. Hello, Mike. So, Ken Early, you were there, you were in the stadium for this 7-1 to shellacking, debacle, horrific loss or triumphant win, depending on your side. But what was it like? What was it like to be in the stadium as Brazil lost, as no other team has lost in such a big moment on their home turf? Imagine you were to gather together 50,000 six-year-old children and tell them at once over a public address system that Santa Claus did not exist. The thing that began to happen then is that these sweet, innocent children who had been disabused of this beautiful illusion, who had been confronted with the fact that their team uh, was really nowhere near as good as they'd wanted it to be, and the players themselves were, were, were experiencing the same disillusionment. I think the gap between the expectation of what that crowd wanted from them and what they knew they were able to deliver, things then began to turn really, really ugly. You could see Brazilian fans moving for the exits at that time. And I thought, there's going to be nobody left in this stadium. But it turned out that most of the fans were going to stay because they had a thing or two they wanted to get off their chests 
and not only to the players, but to the president. We had abuse of the president at the, at the first game in Sao Paulo. Vai tomar na is a chant uh, of the Brazilian fans towards Dilma Rousseff, the president. When Fred, the striker, took a particularly lame shot a few minutes into the second half, this chant was quickly retooled with his name substituted for that of the president. A local player, a guy he, who played for a, a club in the same city, one of the local boys, he should be crowd favorite, is being mercilessly abused in the same terms as the incredibly unpopular president. Each of the players abuse in turns. The German goals, the sixth and seventh German goals, cheered by the Brazilian fans. German passes cheered by the Brazilian fans, screaming, ole, ole, not because they're so sporting that they want to acknowledge the greatness of the Germans, but just because this was the most painful possible way to shame their own players. No mercy, no pity, no forgiveness for, for those players. I don't know how they're going to recover from it, uh, Mike, uh, but I think that everybody in Brazil is going to be thinking uh, and hurting about this game for many, many decades. Well, that was a wonderful description of a horrible, or if you're Germany, glorious day. Thank you very much, Ken Early. Not at all, Mike. The issue of teacher tenure is at the center of the educational reform movement. In California, the courts ruled that the system of tenure and the difficulty in removing substandard teachers violated students' rights. This has spurred similar suits, including one filed in New York this week. In Philadelphia, seniority hiring and firing rules are being fought over as that district of 135,000 students laid off almost 4,000 teachers last year. Just yesterday, the National Education Association, the nation's largest Teachers Union called for the resignation of U.S. Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan because Duncan supported the California courts and is a critic of teacher tenure. So we wanted to put this to educators. Three New York City principals and former principals with different types of schools who have all had to deal with removing bad teachers. What bands them together are, of course, uh, excellence in education, but also they're all alum of the Bank Street College of Education, one of the top teacher colleges in America. Bank Street helped us assemble this panel. Thank you to them. So please, guys, let's go around. I'd like you to tell us who you are so listeners can identify the voice and the position you now hold and if you were ever a tenured member of a teacher's union. My name is Margaret Ryan, and my current position is co-founder and Director of Curriculum and Professional Learning at Harlem Link Charter School. I taught in through the Department of Ed as a third, fifth, seventh, and eighth grade teacher. At the time, I was I came in under emergency certification and was actually not fully certified until my sixth year of teaching and um, left before I became tenured. My name is Elisa Algava, and I am a graduate student in uh, the doctoral program in urban education at the City University of New York at the Graduate Center. I most recently was the director of a small independent school in the Hudson Valley. I also have been public school teacher in a public school district in New Jersey and in two progressive charter schools, one in Rhode Island and one here in New York City. You ever were a tenured teacher? I was offered tenure in New Jersey and then moved to Rhode Island and didn't work that first day of the fourth year where the tenure would have been officially official. Oh, wow. Well, let's see if we have a tenured teacher with... uh, Go ahead. Thank you for having me as well. Uh, My name is Ada Rosario Dolch, and I've been in the New York City public school system for over 30 years. Um, At present, I am a retired 
high school principal, but I was a tenured teacher in our system for over uh, 15 years before I moved into the position of uh, principalship. Uh, subsequently also did some work with the principal's union. So Ada, when you were a principal, was tenure a problem for you? Tenure was not an issue at all. Uh, I think the most important thing about tenure was the fairness that it provides or affords the teachers in terms of um, being fair to them if there was a need to work closely with a teacher to guide them in another direction or perhaps even to go through the process of removing that teacher, it was done. Um, due process to me is the most important part of the teacher tenure process. Oh, wait. And so it wasn't onerous? We hear horror tales about how hard it is to dismiss an unqualified tenured teacher. It's not onerous. It is work. It's hard work. But I think it's something that can be done and, and should be done. Margaret, what's your opinion on teacher tenure? I'm not sure that I ever felt a need to be tenured. I think that teachers, if they are effective, they don't need to have that extra layer of protection. However, I think that because of some schools where I have worked, I know that there is a lack of equity in terms of leadership in schools. And a fairness around who would be fired and who would be retained. And because of that, some highly effective teachers are, who are in the tougher schools around the city um, where people are not trying to get teaching positions in droves mm -hmm. um, may feel that they need that extra layer of protection. But your school, the Harlem Link Charter School, not unionized teaching staff and therefore no tenure? Our teachers have never um, chosen to collectively bargain. Mm -hmm. um, we as school leaders have never chosen to collectively bargain, so we are a union-free school. And that suits you? In the last nine years, there has been no talk in, among our faculty of wanting to collectively bargain. Elisa, open-ended question. What's your opinion on it? I think that one of the unfortunate misconceptions about the way this is all framed is that tenure is about protecting bad teachers, right. when in truth, tenure is about due process. Ada said it wasn't that onerous. It's work. It is possible to remove a bad teacher. Good principals tell me there's also ways that you know how to work the system. That's what great principals do. Would educational outcomes for the students be better if the worst teachers were more easily removed, do you think, Elisa? Well, it's interesting. So I was the director of a small independent school. Yeah. No tenure. Right. Uh, One-year contracts. And we had teachers who struggled there and stayed in teaching probably longer than maybe would have been best for them or for the school or for the kids. To get to the place where we've offered that teacher every single thing we possibly could and finally to say maybe this isn't the right match, that wasn't easy. Did we have to document and check and fill out every single piece of paperwork that I would have had to had I been a New York City DOE principal? No. But it, it's still not easy. So I think it's a misnomer. It's a yeah. misconception that if you don't have tenure, everything's going to be fine. Teacher effectiveness is going to be great. Kids are going to get a great education. And that's part of the way in which it's distracting us from the things we really need to be paying attention to. Margaret, from your experience teaching in the schools, because I'm sure this is not true of your charter school now, how much would the schools be improved if we could easily get rid of, you know, the worst, whatever it is, 10, 15, 20 percent of the teachers? Sure. So I worked in um, three different Department of Ed schools throughout um, my time as teaching, and um, they were in under-resourced communities, and like I said, I was on emergency certification. 
uh, with little experience, I will add. So again, the schools that are in most need are not necessarily getting the teachers with the most experience, nor is there a high percentage that I saw of high-quality teaching in each classroom. An emergency certification, we should say, is they make exceptions to the usual rules of uh, what teachers have to have in terms of what they majored in, and even if they're... Yes, if, and then you have to work towards you certification. Have to work you have a certain yeah. certain time to do that. I would have to say that I did see teachers who were ineffective. And when I say, maybe I would like to define what I mean by mm-hmm. ineffective. And I think that ineffective is any way that children are hurt in the process, academically or social emotionally. And I have seen more than one over the course of my time. And it was um, very disheartening. I do think that morale is an issue when ineffective teachers are able to return year after year to the schools. The climate that it creates is not one where the focus is on the children. And um, effective teachers see that. And it, and it affects them, too. If you know that you are receiving a group of students who the previous year had a very ineffective teacher, you are going to have to work to undo everything that happened the previous year before you can even launch into the new year. And the same applies to if you work really hard with the children and then you send them off to somebody who you know is an ineffective teacher. Um, It really makes you question all of the hard work that that you put in with the children and just what the residual effect will, will be able to be as a result. Would it turn schools around overnight? Absolutely not. Leadership and school culture are humongous. And also school leaders need to be instructional leaders. And I know that that's a hard line to walk when you're in the Department of Ed because principal is everything. And there's a lot that keeps you behind the desk. But I know that the most effective principals are the ones that are in the classrooms and are watching what's going on and make sure that there is a due process. And it is very hard work. But was it your, very hard work. But was it your perception that the tenure rules were one of the one of the factors keeping these teachers in place? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Therefore, it's hard for me to to 100 percent say that I can support it. But I do support due process. And although we are a charter school that is not unionized, we actually have a very robust due process. And teachers would know very far in advance if their year-to-year contract was in question by the end of the year. And well before the end of the year, they would know. I think that the tenure rules in and of themselves are due process. And I think that's where a lot of the misunderstanding comes from. It's the implementation of those tenure rules that's the problem, not the tenure rules themselves. In L.A., tenure was granted after two years. Is that too short? I believe that two years is much too short. I think three years is too short. Administrators, assistant principals have to wait five years to become tenured. I always thought that was interesting. You know, no doctor becomes a doctor overnight. He's got to spend a couple of years practicing his craft. And he also, it doesn't do it in isolation. And, And unfortunately, teachers too often are put in a classroom, the door gets closed and go ahead, do your job. And then we come in and we go, no good. Yeah. So there has to be some changes there. Paint a picture, a realistic picture for me. If, you know, there's a lawsuit in New York, just like the California lawsuit, different set of circumstances, but there's a lawsuit to do away with tenure. If that were to pass, what are some of the not most nightmare scenarios, but realistic things that you worry about might happen to teachers if there were no tenure? One of the reasons that tenure rules originated and unions began in the teaching profession was because, you know, teachers' jobs could be given away at any moment for patronage or for whatever. This is back at the turn of the 20th century. And and women 
dominated the teaching profession and for the most part still do, but in terms of equity and, and, mm-hmm. and fairness and, and being able to know that their jobs were going to be okay. And then also in terms of academic freedom and being able to speak your mind or protest something that you feel like is not fair. And if you didn't have that due process in place where an administrator who didn't like what you were saying could just fire you, you wouldn't be able to speak up against some of the deplorable conditions that teachers have seen in schools or whatever the case might be. And then also politically, if politically you might not be aligned with, whether it's your administration or the new mayor or whatever it is, like there are all kinds of like in Armageddon kind of speak that bad things could happen. On a much smaller, more realistic scale, I think it would, my fear is that to not have tenure, especially, it's interesting that the argument is about inequity, right? The idea that Tenure is actually (laughs) causing ineffective teaching or causing inequity. The truth is to attract good teachers and keep good teachers who are already under a microscope with incredible pressures in districts where there's high teacher turnover, where there's high principal turnover, and 40 to 50 percent of teachers are still leaving within the first five years, Mm -hmm. something like that. And it's deprofessionalizing teaching is, is what it would do if you got rid of tenure. In the long run, I think. What do you think, Ada? Um, for me, uh, the tenure allows that experienced teacher who's been around for a while, who is effective, to feel that um, they can continue to contribute and grow. And if something's not right, they can call it and make a phone call or say, somebody take a look at this without the fear that someone's going to come and get rid of me the next day. Just think that there's a a level of professionalism that comes with that, um, to be able to come to the table and have a conversation without a fear. Even sitting at a round table with your principal and and feel comfortable saying what you need to say without feeling, you know, because I said this, my principal's going to fire me at the end of the school year. But Margaret, you live in a world without tenure, so (laughs) is what they say true? I can definitely see these complexities. I don't think that getting rid of tenure is going to be the silver bullet to to save the the education issues. I really don't. But I do think that having an easier way to identify ineffective teachers and to be able to have them leave a school is crucial for principals. It still needs to be due process, but it has to be less onerous because that's why principals are not getting the teachers out of the classrooms that they need to. All right. Well, I have to say this has been my most pleasant visit ever to the principal's office. Margaret Ryan, Elisa Algava, and Ada Rosario-Dolch, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. For months and months, the GOP, well, certain stalwarts within the GOP, have been issuing consistent and withering denunciations of Barack Obama's foreign policy. I'm talking about the mainstream, the establishment of Republican foreign policy leaders, men like Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and Bob Corker. I actually don't doubt their motives. They think that Obama is weakening America and explain every troublesome international development as a result of the weakened position that Obama has put the U.S. in. I get seeing the world through the weak, strong lens. It's a simple way to order your thoughts. It has appeal to your base. It's not always wrong. In fact, I believe when George W. Bush beat John Kerry in the 2004 presidential race, he won by embodying the following seven-word phrase, I am strong, 
and he is weak. Indeed, when McCain attempted to beat Barack Obama, he tried to win with the same seven-word phrase, I am strong and he is weak. Instead, Obama won with, I am new and they are old. By the way, you can apply the seven-word phrase of presidential election theory to every presidential election in my lifetime. I believe that every campaign has a seven-word message, and whichever side's message wins, wins the election. So the last presidential election, Obama beat Mitt Romney with the phrase, I am you, and he is them. I'll get more into my seven-word theory of presidential elections in a later spiel. This spiel is about the supposed foreign policy weakness of Obama. Here's how it comes up and how it's expressed. I give you three Republican stalwarts on the biggest international flashpoints of the year. One, arming Syrian rebels. Here's Bob Corker. And yet the president sort of jumped in Russia's lap to help us out of this situation and to deal with chemical weapons. And since then, another 30 to 40,000 people have been killed. And here's John McCain on Charlie Rose arguing that the U.S. should more forcefully intervene after Russia took Crimea and made incursions into Ukraine. He's got to understand that there are all kinds of repercussions. Because that's strength. And here's Lindsey Graham. I think his hesitation to not strike ISIS months ago, maybe even 30 days ago, was a mistake because they've gotten so much stronger. And why has ISIS been strengthened? McCain says the war was won and Obama lost it. Graham says the president is alone on an island of non-intervention. The stubborn-headed president we have who thinks he knows better than everybody else. So, again, here are three areas where Obama is supposedly weak. Weakness in not confronting Putin, weakness in not attempting to topple the Assad government in Syria, and weakness in not combating the brutal Sunni rebels of ISIS. And ISIS, we're told ISIS represents the threat of the next 9-11. That's what the senators say. Dick Cheney says it too. Here's Lindsey Graham on CNN. Iraq and Syria combined are going to be the staging area for the next 9-11. Well, who's going to beat back ISIS? Where do the best hopes of defeating the ISIS rebels come from? The answer turns out to be, it looks like, Bashir al-Assad, the guy we were supposed to take down in Syria. He's funded and supported by Vladimir Putin, the guy we were supposed to stand up to in Ukraine. Yeah, the Syrian Air Force bombed targets this week that were ISIS positions in western Iraq and Syria. Iran... Oh, I haven't even mentioned Iran. Of course, Obama was weak on Iran, according to the Republican senators. But Iran has just delivered a bunch of fighter jets to Iraq. Russian-made, Iranian-owned, and they're now attacking ISIS in Iraq and Syria. The Iraqi Prime Minister, Nouri al-Maliki, said on Thursday that he welcomed a Syrian airstrike on Sunni militant positions as it left both countries, quote, winners. So, yeah. It seems like the monsters we failed to destroy are swooping in to destroy the monsters we now most fear. Now, this isn't to say that the Obama administration is so smart and that they were playing the long game. And it's also not to say that Russian and Syrian military might, even if it's now being used against ISIS, doesn't represent big problems. And I also want to be fair to Republican ideas. Bob Corker has laid this out. He says that if we had armed the good Syrian rebels, and if they had defeated Assad, then we wouldn't have to use Assad to overcome ISIS, the bad rebels. If, if, if. My main point here is that foreign policy is complicated and unpredictable and fluid, and that the weak, strong binary 
is just barely useful at all. It was Obama's supposed weakness that led to the strongest rebuke of ISIS. And finally, we also need to realize that there is only so much that the U.S. can do in international affairs. We talk about how the U.S. is going to shape Iraq. Well, Syria has more skin in the game than the U.S. does at this point. We talk about, to pick a different country, Egyptian affairs, how the U.S. can control Egypt. Well, after the military took over in Egypt, the U.S. did have $1.5 billion pledged to the Egyptians, and the EU had $1.3 billion pledged, so maybe that's some leverage, right? But the Saudis had $12 billion pledged. So talk of what the U.S. should allow Egypt to do, or of the administration administration's control of the Egyptian leaders it was ludicrous. And the same is happening now with ISIS. Syria, Russian, even Iran showing just as much sway there because they spend money, they commit war planes, and they have a lot at stake. It's not a good situation. I have no idea how it will play out or if our president is doing enough. But I do strongly suspect that it is a lot harder to be president than to criticize the president. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, is a committed learner and good user of manipulables. Andy Bowers is a caring nurturer who is also the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You could subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. They will be spell-checked and graded accordingly. Sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. This has been a peanut-free zone. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.